right now on Matter of Fact. Every day I would like re-download it and then delete it again. Non-stop scrolling on social media is taking a toll on America's teenagers. I just felt like I had to become these people that I saw. Now the Seattle Public Schools is suing social media companies, blaming them for worsening the youth mental health crisis. Children that have developed eating disorders, severe depression. Who's responsible when teens are harmed by their constant use of social media? Plus, we want education, not indoctrination. Florida's controversial decision surrounding AP African American Studies has stirred a nationwide debate. Our children need to know the whole story. A history professor shares his predictions about what's ahead for teachers and students in classrooms. What's actually happening here? Kids are getting uh, really robbed of hearing America's real history. And forests are disappearing right before our eyes. We take a look at what's being done to save the trees before it's too late. I'm Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. There's an entire generation that doesn't know what life was like before social media. 46% of teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17 say they are constantly online. And about 54% of them say it would be hard to give up social media. Several studies link the constant use of these platforms to depression, even suicide. The CDC reports more teens are feeling persistently sad or hopeless. And suicide rates have increased among young people ages 15 to 24. Now, more parents and educators are demanding action. The Seattle Public Schools is suing social media companies, wanting them to pay for the damages resulting from the youth mental health crisis. Our correspondent, Dan Lieberman, went to Seattle for a closer look at this brewing legal battle. All of these kids, somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's brother, sister, all these lives cut short. What we're dealing with is an epidemic of unparalleled proportions. Attorney Matt Bergman is the founder of the Social Media Victims Law Center in Seattle. His firm represents some 1,400 parents who say their child was harmed by social media use. Children who die accidentally from the TikTok blackout challenge, children that have developed eating disorders, severe depression, many that have been sexually abused online. The social media companies and their algorithms, Bergman says, are responsible. These products are intentionally designed to be addictive. This position on the effects of social media is the basis of a recent lawsuit brought by Seattle Public Schools. They claim that companies behind Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms design their products to be addictive, even though they know the consequences of excessive social media use on young brains. The legal claim is public nuisance, which would be the youth mental health crisis impacting their schools. You break it, you have an obligation to fix it. Dean Kawamoto is part of the legal team representing the Seattle School District. They argue that social media companies are legally obligated to pay for the damages to young people. There has been a tremendous increase in the demand for mental health services. The district is doing what it can, but I mean, the, the Seattle Public Schools, like school systems everywhere, have limited budgets. The district has more than 50,000 students, but is only legally required to have one counselor per school, regardless of the size. Well, I go to a school with 1,700 kids, and there's one mental health counselor for 1,700 kids. 
that's not enough. 17-year-old Stella Rubel is a junior at a Seattle public school. She's struggled with disordered eating and has been in and out of treatment for years. I would be feeling good about my body and then look on social media and see a girl with like a really tiny waist or something. I just felt like I had to become these people that I saw and that really drove the eating patterns and exercising patterns that I had. How many more kids are coming through the emergency room now with mental health crises? We're definitely seeing like, again, our inpatient numbers are increasing by, you know, over 25%. Um, so these are all mental health? It's all just... mental health. Dr. Yolanda Evans is the head of adolescent medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital. Some people will look at this story and they'll say, look, this is on the parents. The parents have to do more. You can't just blame these companies. Blaming it on parents is also unfair. Not every parent has the same access to monitor what their kids are, are watching online. And especially thinking about people who maybe are working multiple jobs, putting all of the emphasis on the individual is not gonna get us very far. Hi, thanks for calling Teen Link. My Stella volunteers with Teen Link, a peer-to-peer helpline where teens in crisis can talk to other teens who can empathize with their experiences. There's a lot of online bullying. People call in about just like wanting to harm themselves from things that have happened online and then other things that have to do with body image. When you started to see that connection between social media and eating habits, what went through your mind? One thing that I did was I deleted TikTok, which took a long time. It was like me deleting it, and then every day I would like re-download it and then delete it again. I would just like keep going through that cycle. Now I haven't had it for like six months, and it feels a lot better. How do you moderate and use these platforms differently today than you maybe did a few years ago? I mean, one thing that I do is I like set a time limit like you can set the time limits on your phone for these apps. Wow, so what's your time limit now on Instagram? It's 15 minutes, which oh, goes by really fast. 15 minutes, that's yeah. all you get. Feels like five minutes. When you're making a product that you know kids are gonna use and indeed your objective is to make them use it, I think you have a responsibility to make sure that that program is safe. In separate statements, all five social media companies named in the lawsuit said they've invested heavily in the safety and well-being of young users with measures like screen time limits, parental supervision, and content blocking. For Matter of Fact, I'm Dan Lieberman in Seattle. Legal experts say in order for the lawsuit to succeed, Seattle Public Schools must prove a direct causal link between these companies' algorithms and the youth mental health crisis. Next on Matter of Fact. Outrage over what America's children learn in the classroom. Is there something different now, do you think? A history professor breaks down the never-ending education debate in our country. These days, it gets called critical race theory. Generations ago, it got called communist subversion. Plus, this family operates the only black-owned farm in their Arkansas town. Now they have their sights set on making history again. There's more to this town than a bunch of farmers. And later, from the most crude to the modern, we'll take you inside this tiny building in Alaska that is home to thousands of historical hammers. 
You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. America's public school textbooks have always been subject to censorship, but in recent years, intervention in what students learn has amped up. More than 20 states have banned books from classrooms, from libraries, or both. And those books often contain subjects about race and identity. Lesson plans are being revised in efforts to eliminate those so-called divisive concepts. Recently, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, told the College Board that his state will not approve its advanced placement African-American studies course. He says it goes against state law for how race can be taught in Florida classrooms. So how did American education become so politicized? Adam Lotz is a professor of education and history at Binghamton University, and also the author of The Other School Reformers, Conservative Activism in American Education. Professor Lotz, thank you for talking with me. Um, the governor of the state of Florida, which I think is a pretty good place to start, has come out pretty recently against AP African American history. Can you explain what's actually happening here? What they're doing is joining a tradition uh, that goes back a long way of not necessarily trying to block black history, but trying to own it, to control it, and to twist it in a lot of ways to make it sound like a happy story uh, when, in fact, uh, you know, kids, by hearing that, are getting uh, really robbed of hearing America's real history. Is there something different now, do you think, or is this just in the historical continuum kind of the same thing just happening again in present day. The rhetoric uh, that not just Governor DeSantis, but other conservatives are using these days, uh, you could have pulled it straight out of not just the 1970s, but the 1930s, the 1920s. It's all this language that we've heard before. You know, these days it gets called critical race theory. Generations ago, it got called communist subversion. Uh, generations before that, it was called evolutionary thinking. So let's say you win the battle and you get African-American AP classes taken out of school. Like, what do you, what do you win? Schools, um, you know, from the principal or the superintendent to the textbook publishers, don't want to be controversial. They want to satisfy a very broad constituency of people with very different ideas sometimes. If a politician or an activist uh, can make an idea seem controversial, whether it's accepted science like evolution or um, accepted historical facts, if you can make that seem controversial, you can, in some ways, manage to exclude it or twist it or control it the way it is presented in schools. I have four kids, and I used to think a really amazing thing was that parents would get involved in the school board. And then you watch these videos and you see parents screaming. Sometimes it literally comes to blows. So what is the best way to, to influence what your, your kid is, is learning in a way that I think can be helpful and not just banning chunks of books. So as a teacher, you want to talk to the parents of your kids. You want to meet with them. But when politicians and ambitious activists make parental rights uh, a, a, a rallying cry, it makes it that much harder for teachers and parents to actually have the kind of conversations that they need to have for the sake of the kids. What should be that relationship, right, between the parents and the teachers and the students in trying to come up with a plan of what is worth learning, important to learn, important to ditch? I think it's crucial to keep in mind that children have a right in public schools 
to the best available kind of knowledge. They have a right to the most advanced subjects uh, and at the right to be exposed to the best literature, the best science, the best history. Polls show this, and they've shown it for the last 50 years. In big majorities, parents are happy with their kids' public schools. And that's because the schools are doing what the communities want to do. Adam Lotz is a professor at Binghamton University. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Coming up, we take a trip to the Mississippi River Delta, where one family is lifting spirits and opportunities. I just think Helena deserves a business that can bring people in to see the beauty in the town. How they're hoping their award-winning distillery helps attract more business owners to their town. Plus, California's trees are dying by the millions, but it's not the only state rapidly losing tree cover. Starting a business is never easy, and when you factor in race, the obstacles can become even tougher. The pandemic has widened the gap. The number of black small business owners fell by 41% compared to 17% of white business owners. Despite the challenges, one family in rural Arkansas has owned and operated their 86-acre farm since 1949. It's the only black-owned farm in the area. Well, now they're expanding to another business venture. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, visited Helena, Arkansas, in the heart of the Mississippi River Delta, to see why this business is about making more than money. Harvey Williams is a trailblazer in a town he's known all his life. Helena, Arkansas sits in one of the state's poorest counties. But Williams' new distillery proves there's richness in the Mississippi Delta. There's more to this town than a bunch of old farmers. I mean, there, there's so much more. I want and I believe that this distillery can bring some, some positive light to that. Patrons from all over the Delta are drawn to Williams' award-winning vodka and gin made from sweet potatoes grown on his family farm. Delta Dirt is the only black-owned farm distillery in the country. But for Williams and his wife, Delta Dirt is distinguished by something even more profound. Donna and I were intentional about wanting our business to be for all people. Williams, an agricultural engineer, and his family returned to the area after years of working outside the state. I didn't necessarily want to farm, like drive tractors every day. Uh, but I did want the farm to be sustained. In the early decades of the 20th century, his great-grandfather was a sharecropper on these 86 acres. But his grandfather devoted himself to buying the land in 1949, selling his cotton for a higher price to someone other than the landowner. And he sold some spirits on the side. The thing is, after he bought the farm, he never did moonshine again. I'm like, okay, so there was a there was a means to the end there. William's father later diversified into raising vegetables, including sweet potatoes. That move has given Williams a chance to expand the family business using his own creative juices. That checked a lot of boxes for me to be able to run a business, grow a business, grow a brand, and still have that farm take care and uh, be sustained. Despite all his groundwork and expertise, Williams was unable to get bank loans. The family used all their savings to start the distillery. He's now inspired to share how the next generation of rural black families can expand their own opportunities to create generational wealth. 
There's more to farming than just driving tractors and doing that. Uh, this is about business. Williams has passed this spirit to his children, like son Thomas, who has become a head distiller. But sadly, Harvey Sr., whose support and guidance was an essential ingredient in their success, passed away last year. I could tell he was proud of us and what we had you know, accomplished, especially in, in this area. I mean, it's not something that black people just do is to open up a distillery and open up a business that has the potential to be as successful as I think we're going to be. For my family, it definitely will be transformational. Cheers. In Helena, Arkansas, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, more than 36 million trees died in California last year, and the U.S. Forest Service is concerned. It's not just a California problem. Trees are dying all across the country. What's being done to preserve one of our sources of oxygen? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Despite the recent heavy rains in California, the state is still dealing with a major drought. In December, storms dumped 400 to 600 percent more rain than normal for that time of year. It's still not enough to stop trees that are dying across the state. The U.S. Forest Service reports more than 36 million trees died in California last year. The dead trees cover an area that's larger than Rhode Island and Delaware combined. Researchers blame drought, high temperatures, insects, diseases, and overcrowded forests. And it's not just a California problem. Trees are dying all across the country. Over the past couple of years, Oregon, Colorado, South Carolina, Maine, Mississippi, Louisiana, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Michigan have lost the most tree cover in the U.S. We obviously need trees for clean water and oxygen and air quality and to preserve the soil. The U.S. Forest Service has an action plan to address the loss of trees. It includes spraying insecticides, removing trees with entangled roots, and planting more trees that will hold onto the soil. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, a museum dedicated to the most common item in your toolbox, the hammer. Finally, a museum dedicated to humankind's first official tool, the hammer. It's located in the small town of Haines, Alaska, and is the world's original hammer museum. A giant hammer sits right outside the four-room building. Inside, there are more than 2,500 hammers on display, from the crude to the modern version we see and use today. This is a dolerite hammer, an ancient Roman tool for smashing. And the double claw hammer was designed in 1902 to pull out nails without bending them. In the 1920s, the patter was used by women to pat their throats and faces to prevent wrinkles and double chins. That is quite a skincare routine. Dave Paul founded his museum in 2002. A couple of similar museums have popped up since then, one in Lithuania, another one in Kentucky. Paul's 2,500 patent documents make his museum unique. The paperwork shows exactly how inventors wanted their hammers to be used. An impressive collection dedicated to hitting the nail on the head. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.